Hello everyone, in this latest episode of the Roads to 9-11 series, Adam is going to explain the Millennium Terror Plot, the Kuala Lumpur Al-Qaeda Summit, and the bombing of the USS Cole. So here's Adam picking up the story where we left off after the bombings of the USS embassies in East Africa. Well, a after the arrest of Mohammed Rashid Dawood Awali for his connection to the uh, 98 embassy bombings, John Antasev from the I-49 squad, which are a group of like uh, FBI investigative prosecutors following bin Laden, talk openly well with Al Hawali. And Al Hawali's at the hospital, he's heard from the shrapnel to his back, they take out the shrapnel, and he, Al Hawali is friendly with Antisub because he's friendly with him, and he gives him a phone number, uh, which he called directly after the bombing. And it turned out that that phone number belonged to a, a safe house in Yemen, Sana Yemen, and it's home to Ahmed al-Hadr. And Ahmed al-Hadr is the father-in-law to Khalid al-Midar. And this phone number would be the, uh, the hub of all al-Qaeda phone traffic. And the NSA begins to tap the line in late August of 98. Um, however, in a little, with a little bit of history behind this, the NSA was tracking the phone number of Osama bin Laden, his satellite phone as far back as 96. And according to other accounts, even as far back as 93, we don't know the, the exact date. Um, it's very uh, controversial as to when. Regardless of the case, they actually hear about this number uh, to the Yemen safe house, but they don't begin tapping that number, but they're aware of it. The FBI is basically like the second agency to know about the number, then the CIA. Um, the NSA begins to tap the Yemeni safe house approximately August of 98, according to a couple of accounts. Now, the CIA begins human intelligence, which is um, they're beginning to track the traffic, the human traffic coming in and out of the house in 98 as well, probably about September, October of 98, a little bit after the NSA begins to begin tapping the line there. Al Hawali he becomes quite cooperative to lead investigators involved in the embassy bombing. Al-Hawali states that Al-Qaeda leadership wishes to attack the, uh, a military target in Yemen, but he doesn't know the details. The operation was, was vague, so no details related to the U.S. investigators. Going back to the Yemeni safe house, the NSA begins transcribing all the calls uh, to, to made to that house from all types of satellite phones, from Al-Qaeda operatives. Now, they have the full transcripts of these people, uh, and they're decoded because these people are talking in code. The CIA runs, runs their information, but they only have half of the information. So they ask the NSA, they ask um, Michael Shorter, who's heading the Bin Laden issue station back in the United States, he starts asking the NSA for the other half of the cable so they can transcribe the cable, and the NSA refuses. So Michael Shore then goes to the head of the NSA, Barbara McNamara, and tells her, listen, we need the other half of that cable where we're going to you know, take you to court. And she says, go ahead. We're not going to give you the other half anyway. So she goes, we'll take you to court. We'll take you to court for compromising the phone, uh, the, the, the tapping of the phone line. Now, this leads to huge confrontation between the two agencies, but the NSA went out. So... Uh, Shoyer is only left with the other half of the cable, and they can't uh, enact on where 
the information is coming from because they're only doing human stuff. They don't tap the line. So there's two different types of intelligence here. Signals, which is the NSA monitoring phone lines, and human intelligence by the, by the uh, CIA, which is following the, the traffic coming in and out of the house. So that means you have the NSA who are getting a lot of the information about where what, what's being talked about, but they're now monitoring the, uh, the traffic. So they're asking, the irony is that they're asking the, NSA, the CIA where these operatives are going, and the CIA is asking the NSA what are they talking about, and neither one's being very cooperative. So, okay, let me, let me just bullet point that, because what sure. I've said so far, okay? Sure. So Al-Hawali is the guy, we talked about him in the, um, the East Africa embassy bombing episode. He's the guy that got out of the car, threw the grenade, realized he'd left his gun in the car, and, and legged it. Um, then so he wouldn't die of a suicide as opposed to a martyr um, and he's picked up by the FBI and he hands over through the, the interrogation methods he hands over the telephone number um, it is unclear as to where the NSA started to tap this very essential very important hub in Yemen because we know this the NSA were tapping um, did I just say NSA before? I meant to say NSA yeah, no that's right, that's right. Um, we know the, the NSA were tapping Osama bin Laden's satellite phone as far back as 96 and he was making calls to the hub right. so you would ask well if they weren't tapping the hub then why not and we right. do accounts on history commons of potentially it was tapped from um, bin Laden's phone was tapped from 93 onwards the hub becomes a thing in 96 which would mean they would have tapped and heard conversations about the embassy bombings and everything right thereafter but there's just really a lot of mystery it seems to me in, in discussing this with you about that we don't really know that the nsa is not giving up much information this, right. initially they won't give anything to the cia right. uh, the cia except their own listening post but they get half and there is this from you know as an outsider completely inexplicable refusal to hand over information so it, it just leads me to ask okay well what what were the nsa did they decode this information what did they get uh, do we know what they got do we, have, do we, the public, have access to the transcripts? And what was their plan of action with the information? And did it all end up in court? So th those are the kind of questions it raises. So maybe go on with whatever you're going to say and, and pick up on some of my questions there, Adam. No, I, I would love to go back to the point that which you made about the tr what was the NSA transcribing in those calls. Now, if, if they're listening to all the, 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 the calls made to the hub, Actually, somewhere down the line, they're talking about these operations, these the 98 embassy bombings, um, the USS Cole, the Sullivan bombing, which I'll talk about, and maybe even 9-11. Right? That's what I've always believed. And if that's the case, um, you would we lead into speculation, and I don't want to do this because we it leads into nothingness. Um, then you have to believe that they knew about these operations and share this information, uh, which is ironic because that's what the CIA is doing to the FBI. And all the agencies down the yeah, line. We'll come on to the CIA not giving the FBI right. maybe next time, actually. That'll be the right, okay. right, for sure. But going back to the NSA, I would submit to you, I think that whatever calls were made to the house, they knew about it, transcribed the calls and knew what was going to happen. That's just my, I mean, that has to be the case. Well, you, I mean, you could say, if, if I was defending the NSA, you could say, well, you know, maybe they didn't break the code, right? Like maybe the coal sure. bombing, there was just guys talking about a fishing trip in Aden Harbor or something. Right. And they didn't get, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate or NSA. Right, right. <laughs> no, that's absolutely correct. Because when when Michael Hayden gave his opening speech in the in the Joint House inquiry in 2003, he states that um, all the calls, that all the information that we got, uh, we never transcribed in time. And we gave information to the CIA. 
he perjured himself there because the CIA yeah. then claims that he never gave anything. It, it does um, also raise the question for me, if they didn't transcribe, like, it, it was clear at the time, um, and if it wasn't, if there's any doubt about it, you know, the, the Bajinka plot has already been uncovered, so the World Trade Center bombed in 93, it's pretty clear Islamic terrorism is a thing and a threat, right? I mean, you could say maybe there are, there are others, maybe they're more concerned about nation states, but actually it's it's islamic terrorism that's caused all all the the deaths on strikes on americans so if they're not transcribing calls to the major hub of al-qaeda what do they do actually at the nsa well i would agree attention on you know right and i would agree with you there it makes absolutely no sense um nsa has a lot of linguists they're familiar with the arab culture the arab language yazidi uh farsi etc and um where the fbi is not the only I think the only uh, uh, fluent Farsi speaker was um, Ali Soufan at the time. So, they, you know, they were ill-equipped. The CIA itself has many uh, Farsi speakers, Arabic speakers, even Kofor Black, and to an extent Richard Blee, uh, Doug Wilshire himself also, and Shoyer was fluent. Yeah, these are all guys in the Bin Laden unit. The, the that's, co that's correct. Yeah. And they had to be because they're obviously human intelligence in Yemen and Saudi Arabia, what have you. However, with the NSA, it really lends to a lot of mystery here that we're talking about. When did they really start? Because there's counts that they started uh, monitoring the hub, tapping the hub, as far back as 96. But we're not very sure yet. According to uh, certain accounts, they start, according to Lawrence Wright, he's one account. Uh, according to the U.S. Department of Justice, another account, they started officially monitoring it in, in uh, August of 98. But... I, I would submit to you, I think the NSA is being very disingenuous here regarding when they start. And I, I actually believe that, um, uh, as with the latest revelations, according to me. Um, so take that into account, um, that maybe they started as, in mid-96, maybe they started in August of 98. We can only go by what's afforded to us by these accounts, which we find reputable. And we're not dealing with speculation. And we I'm did. assuming, you know, you can't go to the NSA website and download the transcripts at this point. <laughs> right. No, uh, because, this right, information because, is classified, and will it yeah. will it be declassified in our lifetimes? Is there a, do you have any knowledge of the, the time? Good luck, because I will tell you, I will tell you right now, those this with this revelation that we just found out not too long ago, uh, regarding the NSA, maybe even going back as far as tapping lines nine six. I would submit to you. This is classified information. We'll never know. Who knows? Maybe there'll be enough. It gives me an idea that maybe I'll go with another researcher of mine, Nelson Martins, and we'll file an FOA request because I'll do it. And that really gives me a lot of motivation to do so. But I'll be met with, with, with criticism. I'll say, you know what? No, it's classified. And that's the realistic approach. So I would say that this information will be classified. Okay. So to summarize, the NSA was certainly getting this information prior to the Millennium Plot um, and the coal bombing. And um, possibly, we're speculating right. about prior to the right. embassy bombings. So that's, that's a, a sort of a brief account of the important centrality of the Yemeni hub and the NSA. We might talk about the NSA in its whole history in a future um, video if you're up for that. But sure. let's bring it back into the, the coal bombing. Um, uh, whatever, you, wherever you want to lead that, you know, we've got coal bombing, Millennium Kuala, uh, plot, Kuala Lumpur summit. What, what, carry on with the the story, whatever's important. Sure. Now. No, I'll, I'll just lead right back to Al Hawal. He's being investigated by the State Department or the Department of Justice in the United States. Um, 
he later reveals that um, two leaders of the coal bomb will be participants in the U.S. Embassy bomb. And one of those people that Awali mentions is um, Abed al-Rahim al-Nashri, who's a, a very top al-Qaeda operative um, who heads operations in the Gulf states, like Bahrain, Yemen, Saudi Arabia. Al-Nashri called the Yemen help to discuss attacking a U.S. warship. And U.S. authorities learned of this call no later by December of 2000. But the details of how they learned this information is unknown. I think with the latest revelations comes from the NSA. But again, we don't know for sure yet. Now, um, Al-Nishri um, would begin dialogue with Ahmed al-Hada back at Yemen to begin operations involving for a U.S. warship in the port of Aden. Now, Jack Coonan, John Antisov, the I-49 squad begin to, to begin to create a map in their New York office of all the calls made from the Yemen hub to places all around the world. Um, so that leads me to believe that they're somehow working in tangent with the NSA. It's not, okay, I don't know, yeah. yeah, regarding some information. Now, um, they, now the, of course, the map is located in the New York uh, FBI field office. The CIA, at, at around this time, begins monitoring the home using human intelligence, while the NSA, of course, is signal intelligence. They tap the line. Um, Walid, uh, whose nickname is Khalad, Walid bin Atash, who began, who's a later, uh, a more formidable figure for 9-11 as well, is sent to Yemen to help with uh, the operations headed by al-Nishri and to get um, bombing, uh, to gain explosives to bomb a ship, but they don't know which ship yet. And also to get a U.S. visa so he could travel to the United States. Uh, Atash is actually arrested in Yemen. And Bin Laden actually finds out about the rest and fears that Tosh will reveal the operations uh, for the bombing of the, US uh, of the U.S. military ship in Yemen. However, he, he contacts Yemen investigators and officials, and he, he promises them that he won't attack the government if they release Atash. And they do. They, they relent to Bin Laden's wishes, and Atash returns to Afghanistan. And nobody knows where in Afghanistan he goes. I think, preferably, he goes to Kandahar because that's where Bin Laden is. Um, it is also suspected that um, Ye Yemen officials uh, began to assist al-Nishri in his plan to bomb uh, U.S. warships in, in these Yemeni ports. And it, it's here that Khalid, uh, I mean Khalid al-Midar, uh, tells another al-Qaeda operative about an incoming operation involving uh, a U.S. naval warship. And the U.S. learns of this uh, from a detainee interviewed in 2001. Now, I, I would submit to you, I think this information is also learned by phone calls by Al, Al Midar, and the NSA doesn't tell anybody then. So that, uh, again, I don't want to speculate as to why they're holding this information, and because we, we really don't know why. Um, but an earlier um, uncoordinated attack on the USS Sullivan fails uh, when a boat uh, was overweighed by explosives and sank in the water by the Port of Aden. It just leads you to tell you that, you know, a lot of these Islamists aren't very um, uh, really equipped in the intelligence department because they, they, I think the, the, the ship weighed like 100 pounds overweight. So they sent a lot of explosives where they didn't even bother to, um, to have like a pre-planned uh, pre practice of sorts. Um, but on October 5th of 2000, 
the single, the start of the, I have to bring up this, this fact. On February, on January 5th of 2000, the start of the single most important um, high-level Al-Qaeda meeting would take place from January 5th to January 8th. About a dozen of Bin Laden's trusted operatives would meet in a condominium owned by Yaid Sufdan, who is a high-level member of a group called Jemma Islamiyah, which is a, uh, a Salafist organization operated in Malaysia. This meeting would become commonly known as the Al-Qaeda Summit meeting in Kuala Lumpur. And the attendees were as follows, big level, high level Al-Qaeda operatives named uh, Ridwin Isamuddin, who's nicknamed Hambali. Um, of course, Wali Khalad bin Atash, uh, Ramzi bin Shabib, Khalid al-Midar, Nawaf al-Hamzi, Ab 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 Abdul Rahim al-Nishri, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And according to an unnamed senior CIA official, before the summit started, the CIA learned about 11 young guys, meaning 11 Islamists, slang for operatives, um, were going to conduct this meeting. Now, during the meeting, it is speculated by those in the CIA that the plans for the 9-11 attacks, as well as the coal, were orchestrated here. It is also insinuated by the FBI that the Bajinka plot was in talks here, which is what, which is what 9-11 uh, attacks were derived from. The CIA begins taking photos of the members involved in the meetings that were coming out of the place. However, before this meeting took place on January 4th of 2000, Khalid Al-Midar was traveling to the meeting, but he stopped over in Dubai. That's in the U.S. Arab Emirates. Mm -hmm. And he stood at a hotel and the CIA actually breaks into his hotel and takes photographs of his passport. The reason why I'm bringing this up because I'll bring this up in the future uh, regarding 9-11 attacks, that the CIA has this information, but never tells the FBI about this information. Yeah, so Lee Midhart is um, one of the hijackers um, okay. on the Flight 77 that goes into the Pentagon, and they found this passport that, well, go on, you, you say about the passport. Right. Now, th because the passport itself proves that he has a multi-entry visa in the United States, and that this information was read, the cable was read, by 53 agents within the CIA, most of them in the Bin Laden administration. When the FBI found out, Mark Rossini was there, um, uh, Doug Miller, they were with John, with John O'Neill's unit. And when they found out about the cable, they tried to alert the FBI. And they were blocked from doing so by uh, Tom Wilshire, who's head of the, uh, was one of the liaison users, high, high level liaison in the Bin Laden administration. And of course, from, um, uh, Alfredo, uh, Alfredo Petowski, who was actually married to Michael Scheuer. Um, and at this, and I'll bring that up later, more information on later in the knowledge of the tax. I just sure. wanted to bring that up in this case, because it's very important. How, going back after this, after this, on the peak morning of October 12th of 2000, uh, Kirk Leopold, the Lippold of the USS Cole, orders the ship to be docked at the, the port of Aden. At approximately 11.30, 11, 11.15, 11.30 a.m., um, a small boat carrying C-4 explosives with two operatives uh, slanted to the port side of the ship, and it creates a, a, a huge blast, a, a 40 to 60 feet gash, and it kills 17 sailors and uh, injured 39. An investigation was conducted almost immediately by the 
Naval Criminal Investigation Services, or in short, the NCIS. The FBI leading the way by John O'Neill, who, who's ordered to go to investigate the unit, travels from New York to investigate the matter. And while what, what's he did, John O'Neill's role in the FBI at this point? Um, he, he actually leads the, uh, the he, he's actually the, the most authoritative agent within the FBI anywhere on the East Coast regarding uh, the intricate details of Al-Qaeda. He is like the preeminent investigator. He actually speaks Arabic. He's fluent in Farsi. He knows um, the culture well. He knows about the top hub, whereas nobody knew who Khalid Sheikh, uh, Khalid Alvin, I mean, um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was. He knew who Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was. One of the very few agents in the world to know about him. So he's very familiarized with Al-Qaeda itself. So he actually gets uh, the more important uh, lead investigating regarding like uh, in terrorist operations around the world. So they order him to go to investigate the matter. However, when he gets off the plane, he's met with uh, staunch military, Yemen military, with guns drawn. And he actually gains a little bit of ground because he knows the, uh, the, the Yemeni general per firsthand. And they, they blow with their guns. He goes and he talks to him. Now, he's met with, with staunch skepticism right away from U.S. ambassador to Yemen, Barbara Bodine. She knows of O'Neill's reputation and decides to stall O'Neill's investigation by restricting him access to, the, to interview suspects of the bomb. Now, Yemen, uh, Yemen in, uh, investigators were rather hostile, even to, but they weren't hostile to his, to his investigation. O'Neill would rather find out that his initial thoughts were correct, that Al-Qaeda perpetrated the attacks, that the bombing was carried out by Al-Qaeda. And it was carried out by two people, Hassan uh, Al-Khimri and Ibrahim Al-Thawar. These were just low-level Al-Qaeda operatives. Now, O'Neill learns of the names from, uh, from, his, from, from some Al-Qaeda operatives involved in the attack. One of them was Khalid uh, uh, Tafik bin Atash and Fahad Al-Qusa. And later on, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. O'Neill, under pressure from Barbara Boudin and the State Department, have his team flown back because Barbara Boudin and O'Neill clash because O'Neill now wants to talk to the people who were arrested within with, with suspects that he feels that he could get somewhere um, forward with, with the information. Okay. But Bo yeah, go on. How, how does O'Neill acquire this information about Al-Qaeda? Because one of the things that I found when, when looking into this was it, it always seems to remain very ambiguous as to who exactly did it for quite a long time. So do the Yemeni authorities round people up and then O'Neill talks to them? And yes, because, no, that's true. Because Yemeni, Yemeni, I think, arrests somewhere between 40 to 50 people that were suspect. O'Neill is actually allowed only to interview lower-level subjects, but not at this time Benatash, because remember, Benatash is arrested. He then gets released, right? He gets released mm -hmm. afterwards. But he does manage to interview Atash once. And Atash is not very full with him. And Yemeni officials still are like um, very, uh, I think they were involved in the attacks. That's speculation, but they wouldn't allow him to interview a lot of these people. Well, and, there was, um, it came out of the thing about C4 is not inconsequential, right? Because the bombs we've seen so far have been ammonium nitrate. That's correct. Bomb that you can cook if you know what you're doing out of 
supplies that are available to anyone. C4 is not available to anyone's military-grade explosives. And that's correct. And that's, that's why I, right. And I, uh, that's, look, I'm going to speculate that the Yemeni officials actually gave them these C4 explosives. And look, Yemen's been very hostile to the United States to begin with. They're considered uh, a hub of radical Islamists. It's a huge um, Yemeni al-Qaeda cell there as well. And much in a way of like, uh, who can I say, with Japan allowing the Yakuza to operate because they knew crime was going to happen anyway. I think that's the case here with Yemen. That even though that they won't be uh, a bombing attacks within the country itself, they allowed al-Qaeda to, to, to operate uh, within the country on the concept that they want to attack the government. And that's what exactly what, what happened with bin Laden when he calls the Yemen officials to look, we'll bomb, we won't bomb the country, just allow bin, Khalid bin Atash to be released, and they do, and nothing happens to the country. Um, but like I said, speculation on my part. Yeah, that, I, 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 th I think it's worthy of note, just in, in reading about this, there was a, a former CIA counterterrorism chief, um, Vincent Canestrano. Canestrano, oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, he, Canestrano. He pointed the finger at Iraq for it, saying this is military-grade explosives, it seems like state-backed. Um, it's the kind of thing the Iraqis would want to do. So it's, it's interesting that even uh, prior to 9-11, there were these efforts to link in, as, as we saw with Ramzi Youssef, actually, that there's, there's always an attempt to tie terrorists into, right. into Iraq. Right. And it, but, but, but it leads you to the bigger picture, right? Why these people conduct these attacks. And look, Ramzi Youssef even says it in the sensing, uh, 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 bin Laden in numerous interviews, it wasn't about Americans' freedoms and their civil liberties. It was about their foreign policy. And it goes back to Iraq sanctions, which killed uh, a million people, 500,000, you know, most of them children and the elderly. And, you know, they, it goes back into the, the subjugation of these Arab peoples and these peoples around the Middle East. And, you know, the, the um, of course, the one-sided view of Israeli policy, Saudis, preconceived enemies. and not to dissuade from our talks here, but that's important. If you listen to these people, and it doesn't absolve them of their crimes. Mm -hmm. now, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. saying that, you know, Ramsey Yusuf's a, a face of moral beacon, you know, beacon of light, but you have to listen to what they're saying. Why are these people attacking the coal, the World Trade Center, um, you know, American interests, right? Why are they attacking them? Well, they're telling you, and it's best to listen. But, you know, the State Department, the Pentagon, and what have you, the newest... Uh, uh, military and political institutions that they'll, they'll tell you a lie. Oh, they hate our freedoms. And that's not, not never the case. I mean, the only people who's, who would suggest this would be like these, you know, lower primitive uh, spokesmen from the Islamic State. <laughs> so, you know, the, the real people who, yeah. by the way, Al-Qaeda would disassociate and say, you know, these people are nuts. And what, I mean, what does that tell you, right? You know, one terrorist group telling Hey, you're too much of a terrorist. Mm. So, but yeah, but it goes to show you that there's a separation of like uh, a reality from fantasy. They're they're telling you um, your foreign policy is killing millions and millions of people. Um, but to go back to the you know the Yemen, and I'll, I'll finish off with this. In December of 2000, Yemen investigators are read uh, they arrest at least uh, two of the operatives involved. They arrest Fahad Al Kuso and Jamal Abadwahi because. Khalid, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is already in Qatar. He's in Afghanistan. No one can catch him. And um, that's the end of the investigation. And, and nobody is arrested for this, the U.S. is cold. They make a lot of arrests, and guess what happens? All the suspects that the Yemen officials arrest, they, allow, they, they escape anyway. 
And the escape, and how they escaped is what under the auspices of the Yemen investigators and the officials. They walk right out of the prison. Right out. So um, the people who are really involved, the people who are the suspects, are uh, released anyway. Even though they arrested Kuso and Badawi, they don't get much in the way of time. Nobody's really held accountable. So that's the end of the USS Cole. And that's why I believe, and it's not much in the way of like real, uh, in the way of the fantastical and almost like the base of speculation to say that the Yemen officials were involved in these attacks. So, uh, but, but, but it's not really concrete that they were, but I mean, to allow the suspect just to leave, I mean, what does that tell you, right? So that's the end of the USS Cole. And, um, if you want, I'll talk about the Millennium Bomb. Yeah, I would. Can I just pin you back to the Kuala Lumpur Summit for a moment? Sure, absolutely. Okay, because when we're talking about the CAA knowing it went on, and um, as I understand it, there was the, the Malaysian security forces took video of the summit, but not audio. Either something I'm not quite sure something went wrong with the audio or whatever. But they, they there was an effort to bug the summit that then went wrong? There is, this is an interesting topic because for one, it was speculated, speculated, that's important, that the CIA had audio. I don't believe that. I don't think they ever got inside the condominium unless they had prior knowledge that that meeting was gonna take place. And there's no evidence to suggest so. They only found out that that meeting was gonna take place by tracking the whereabouts of all these people and from the human intelligence. Because remember, they couldn't get the information from the NSA regarding that information, which leads me to believe the NSA knew this meeting was going to take place because they had to have talked about it. The Al-Qaeda operatives, they had yeah. to have talked about it. Yeah. And so that information was not shared with the CIA. That, I believe, for, for sure. The, the CIA only can only go by the, the tracking of these operatives, like Khalid al-Midar, to the UAE. He took his photograph, they knew who he was. They didn't share that information with the FBI, nor, by the way, to the NSA. So they kept that information. So they can only track where he was going because he bought the plane tickets going to Malaysia. So they track him, they find out the the uh, the meeting, and I don't think they took audio. I just think they tracked, they took pictures. And they remember, they uh, according to Lawrence Wright in the Looming Tower, and according to uh, testimony by Kofor um, uh, Black, in the joint house inquiry, he states that, yes, we shared that information to this unknown FBI agent who we don't know yet, who, who, who testified anonymously that yes, in the joint house inquiry, yes, they gave me that information, but they were very vague about it. They didn't tell him who he was. Meanwhile, it was Khalid al-Midar. Meanwhile, it was um, Hambali, Ridu Adismidu, Khalid, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. They only showed him pictures of the people and the FBI didn't know who they were. So the CIA was very vague about their information. And so this leads into the fact that the NSA is not sharing with the CIA, CIA is not sharing with the NSA and the FBI. So it goes, I mean, there's interfighting, but there's also a lot of mystery regarding um, maybe they wanted the attacks to happen. Again, speculation, um, but it makes you wonder what's going on here about not sharing the information. I, I, I'll, I'll say safely that it was agency interfighting. If some agents within the NSA or the CIA wanted these to happen, I won't disagree. I think there were some that wanted this to happen, maybe. 
I can't prove it. So that I want to be very careful with how I imply this information. And I don't want to sound like some you know, conspiracy theorist and just say, hey, they wanted this to happen without allowing you, the viewer, um, to be warned that what I'm saying is speculative regarding the, the meeting. But yes, Malaysian authorities actually took photos themselves, but I don't think they shared, I think they shared that with the CIA as well. But the CIA already had uh, liaison units photographing uh, uh, the, the people coming in out of there for the yeah. three days, from January 5th to the 8th. And, they, and this, was, this is really important. Like I said previously to you before, this is very important because they never share that information with the FBI. And remember also, that I'll add this, George Tenet actually goes before the 9-11 Commission twice and also to the Joint Answer but it's to the 9-11 Commission. He states, now Tim Romer is one of the commission members, he tells him, um, what did you know about uh, the, the, the cable? No, I'm sorry. It was um, um, Carl Levin, and it was in the Joint House Inquiry. He tells George Tenet, why didn't the CIA share this information with the FBI? And he says, I'll quote to you the best I can. Tenet says, the cable was information only, and nobody read that cable. I know nobody read that cable. End quote. Carl Levin then responds, should the cable have been read? George Tenet, quote, in hindsight, yes, of course that cable should have been read. End quote. Carl Levin then says, who was responsible for reading that cable? End quote. George Quentin, quote, I don't know. I'll find out that information. End quote. Tenet lies here because it's later found out 53 agents read that cable, most of them in the bid line issue station. It makes sense. Why? Because Mark Rossini and Doug Miller, who were FBI agents liaison to the bid line issue station, read the cable. They found out, and they were blocked from sharing that information back to the FBI, threatened with arrest. Mark Rossini was. And Doug Miller had his cable read by um, Doug Wilshire, uh, Tom Wilshire, and his cable actually was, re was restricted and said, um, and sent back and said that uh, the cable is not sent through to the FBI headquarters. So they were restricted and threatened from legal action by the agents within the CIA. And, and it makes you, and of course, this leads to speculation as to why they wanted this information yeah, restricted. Sure. And, so yeah, you know where I'm going. Speculation that they might have right. been trying to flip them, recruit. Because right. right. the CIA claimed they lost track of the two Flight 77 hijackers as they left the Malaysia Summit Rights, so did not notice them coming into the, the U.S. then. That's correct, but I, I mean, that's, that's false. They knew. They knew where they yeah. were going. So, I mean, yeah, we'll probably, we'll probably do something specifically on Alex sure. Right, so sure. maybe any yeah. plot. There. And just to make the listener aware that we're kind of we're kind of going back in time here. So the USS Cole is is at the end of the year two thousand. The Kuala, um, the Malaysia summit is is at the beginning, and the Millennium plot is obviously at the millennium of the year nineteen ninety nine, transitioning into the year two thousand. That's correct. Now the Millennium bomb plots are as follows. It was a series of bombings regarding the USS Sullivan, which we talked about before. Jordanian sites known to be visited by Christians and Jews, uh, the hijacking of Indian Airlines Flight 814, uh, the bombing of the Los Angeles International Airport, in short, LAX, and uh, as well as militant Islam, like Islamist uh, reprisals against military in Lebanon and Syria. 
So there was a multitude of attacks. It's a huge operation. And this was an operation that was discussed within the Kuala Lumpur meeting. These attacks were to coincide with the turn of the century, mainly January 1st of 2000, or close to thereof. That's the reason why I, I mentioned the U.S.'s code first, because they all coincided with one another. Now, months prior to these attacks, it was noted by CIA Director George Tenet. He recovered numerous cables drafted from various points in Lebanon, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, from their intelligence apparatus, warning of a series of attacks by Al-Qaeda and their affiliates. Now, Tenet would bring this information to have closed-door meetings with State Department officials and state that Bin Laden probably was the main perpetrator. But just before January of 2000, Tenet then says um, that this premonition uh, was based on false data, that even publicly stated that he didn't even know if Bin Laden was the primary suspect. So he, he kind of flip-flops here. Um, but going a little bit back on November 30th of, two, uh, go a little bit forward, November 30th through 2000, Jordanian officials and their terrorist investigators discover the plot to blow up uh, the, uh, the Radisson Hotel in Ahmad, Jordan. Um, the Jordanian government intercepts a call between al-Qaeda uh, Abu Zubaydah and one Abu Hasha, who's a leading figure in Jordan for his terrorist activities, a nefarious figure, more like an uh, international gangster, if you will, than an Islamist. Now, this is important because I'm going to bring this up later also in 9-11 discussions. And it's also a code word that you barely ever heard. And the only only person I ever heard coming from it, and he penned his book named after the big wedding, was um, um, uh, Sandra Hanks. Yeah. Right, Sandra Hanks. Now, Zubedea says the grooms are ready for the big wedding. In short, the big wedding was called code word used by Al-Qaeda since FBI investigators heard a call between the U.S. and BBC bombings, also called the Big Wedding, right. which I talked about before. Um, and this would be uh, known for like a big plan of attack, a big attack. On December 12th of 99, going back a little bit, Jordan investigators arrested Hashar and 15 others. Now, 28 people were arrested in total for the plot. 22 were quickly found guilty and sentenced to death right away. They had no sentence, no trial. They were quickly sentenced to death. Abu Zubaydah was found guilty in absentia, sent to death in absentia. By the way, he's the only person uh, sent to death in absentia regarding any of these Islamist attacks because it's, it's stated that he's in Afghanistan at this time. So they, they, could, they don't have extradition treaty between, of course, Af Afghanistan and, and Lebanon. So in early of December, Richard Clark, along with the CIA, would receive pertinent information from joining officials regarding al-Qaeda planning attack inside the United States. The, the information is vague, so they can't really act on it. Now, Clark warns Bill Clinton about what was happening. Now, this, this is really important because this is a first. So it's good to clarify. We're in December 1999 here, coming up to the... That's right, coming up to, yeah, the, to the, millennium. the millennium. Right, coming right up to the millennium. Now, the plan focuses on harassing and disrupting al-Qaeda members throughout the world now. using the combined agencies as a first, the CIA, the NSA, I mean, the CIA and the FBI, not the NSA. This would be the, the first and only time in history where they would share all the information regarding this plot, the Millennium Plot, and they would act in accordance. They would not be um, 
they would, the CIA and the FBI wouldn't hold back information. So they would act as a singular unit. It's the only time this happened. So um, all the U.S. embassies were put, and military bases, police departments, um, other agencies were given high alert to look out for a big al-Qaeda bomb attack. I, I was aware, I was around, I was in New York at the time, and I remember this because I lived near a precinct called the 104th Precinct in Queens, and they were put on, it was a big thing, even in local papers, um, that, that would say that, uh, that, you know, an attack could take place. I remember this clearly. Um, in 1990, to go back a little bit and further, to give a history uh, regarding uh, Ahmed Rassam, who's a big figure here. In February of 99, Algerian-born uh, Ahmed Rassam, to give you the, the reader who he is, he comes to, to Montreal. And he enters under an alias called Benny Norris. And he had $12,000 cash um, given to him while he was training in Chaldean, Afghanistan, called the, uh, the Chaldean uh, Training Facility. Huge training facility headed by Abu Zubaydah. Now, he gives us money because he's actually hoping to fund the attacks at the LAX airport in Los Angeles. Though, now, he had other people that were supposed to join him. They failed to get through the, the Canadian border. And Rassam's the only one who comes into the country, but he, he's remained undeterred. And he plans to become the only operative. He goes forward with the operation. By uh, August of 99, he scouts the LAX terminals and sent back word to his superiors in Afghanistan that LAX is a definitive target for an attack. The security is very lax there. In September of 99, Rassam purchases electronic equipment, components to build... Um, detonators, and, for, and he wanted to build four timing devices. Now, during this time, Ahmed Rassam gets the help of an old accomplice from his petty criminal days in Algeria, and Abdel Majid Dahoumain is his name. It's a long name. It's going to be hard to, I'll just name Dahoumain is his name. Both Rassam and Dahoumain buy urea and aluminum sulfate from nurseries and mix them together with nitrate and um, uh, sulfaic acid, and they mix it together and they form this fertilizer manufacturing. Does this sound familiar? Um, to build a huge device, all four devices that would create uh, separate blasts within the terminal, because the terminals are very large in LAX. And what he wanted to do was build put one in one terminal, another terminal, when the people were running to the other terminal to escape the blast, they would run into another blast, and so on and so forth. Pretty decent op uh, sizable operation there. Um, now, what he wanted to do was kill main thousands in the terminals. And Rock, Wassem, and Daoming then traveled to Montreal, Quebec, on a which is then to Vancouver in British Columbia on the date of November 17th. They almost managed to, to blunder the operation because when they are in the hotels, they're mixing the chemicals and they leave all these types of burns and stains in the hotel tables. When they go, uh, when the maintenance goes into the shower, they find that the plumbing is corroded, and they don't even they don't even know what corroded because it was later by the FBI. They find out that they stay in those hotels and they see it's urea, nit urea nitrate and sulfuric acid. So and by and they almost blew the whole operation, but they are un undeterred. By December of 1999, Rassam calls back to Afghanistan and he talks to an operative called Abu Jafar al Jazeer, and who's an Al Qaeda financier. And also, he's a Saudi native, by the way. And, a bit, and he asks him if 
Big Live wanted to take credit for the attacks. Interesting to know that Rasem got no answer back. It's very interesting. Uh, but I'll need, and there's no really uh, follow-up information regarding this. It's very um, obscure, that, that information. But it makes you wonder why he doesn't. Anyway, Rasem gets no answer back. And on December 11th, Rasem gets contacted by uh, an old friend of mine from Algeria called Abdel Ghani Meskini, who helps him take part in the operation. And he agrees to meet him in Seattle because he's already in Seattle. And on the evening of December 13, 1999, Rasem rents a dark green uh, Chrysler and Dahumain would be in the passenger seat. Both would be put, would put all the explosives. And where would they put them? In the trunk. And this leads me to believe that these are just bumbling people because they had to have known that customs are going to check the car. Okay, they said, where did they put in the truck? And it does make people laugh, but it's underneath the wheel of the trunk. It's pounds of like uh, sulfuric acid, urea nitrate, just, and they're in bombs, bomb components, four of them. And it weighs, the car's like weighed a couple of pounds overweight. So, okay, anyway, on December 14th, they leave Vancouver. And they traveled back to British Columbia, where they would try to cut, try to then get into the United States. Now, Sam would later state that they took this route to draw less attention, which was right because British Columbia is not as a uh, it's a small area as compared to like um, uh, like uh, I guess Toronto or something like that. But Dow Maine would be sent back to Vancouver by bus so that Sam would just go alone and. He's actually successful in going through U.S. immigrations through Victoria College. U.S. immigrates, I, I don't know. It just goes to figure, you know, these investigators are not very good, right? And then he goes to British Columbia and boards the last ferry of the day for the trip to the United States. Now, I, I would disagree. I, I, I mean, you know, you would think that maybe he should have been in part, like in the middle somewhere of these, because there's like 20 cars aboard the boat, but he picks the last one, right? Now, um, when the ferry docks at Port, Los Angeles, uh, Port Angeles at 6 p.m., Wasem intends to be the last car to leave the ferry. So when he arrives at the customs checkpoint, thank goodness, Deanna Dean, who's a, a U.S. Customs Inspector, the second uh, part of it in the United States, conducts a search of Wasem's car. Now, Dean notices that he's very agitated and he's like, you know, he's shifting uncomfortably at this point and is, you know, it's physical to me, he's sweating. And he becomes automatically uncorroborative. And Dean then says, uh, you know what, just fill out this form and it's nothing, then we'll let you go. Knowing that we should just check the car. So she gives this small like um, uh, towel to another operative to check the car itself. Meanwhile, Bissem's back is to the car. He doesn't know what's going on. And what does he do? He uses the alias Benny Norris, which I mentioned before, on all of the forms that he's filling out, and also his ID cards, his, his, his passport, all have the, the, uh, the alias Benny Norris. While he's while he's preoccupied, they're looking in the trunk, and he looked through the wheel well, and what did they find? <laughs> to their shock, uh, a multitude of items, like fuses, the bomb components, uh, urea nitrate. Rissam finds out, he looks back, and he starts running for the help. He runs about Oh, like Ford is like six blocks inside the audience. But meanwhile, you have like this, this flu of investigators running after him. And he's caught easily. I mean, you know, he falls down much in the way of like when Abdul Hakim Arad tried to go back to the laptop in, in um, Malaysia in 96. 
for Bram's use of it, he falls and runs out. But through an invest, it was later that um, he becomes very uncooperative with investigators, and at, they find out that his name is Ahmed Rashid. Oh, yeah. um, do you say cooperative or uncooperative? Though? No, no, he becomes fully cooperative right fully away. Fully cooperative, right? Yeah, right away, uh, because I, you know, he knows the jig is up. He's not going to lie about it because the bombs are right there in the truck. Yeah. Right, so he's not going to lie. But anyway, uh, when, when they look through his car, they find out numbers from one Afghanistan operative named Abu Doha, who is a high-level al-Qaeda operative, where? In Algeria. And later, they interrogate, I mean, customs, the FBI interrogate Rasim. And even though he was very cooperative, he becomes very stoic. Um, and all of a sudden, later, just completely uncooperative. Now, Rasim later is indicted for nine counts of criminal and terrorist activity. And then all of a sudden, when he's, you know, mentioned that he's facing 130 years, automatically says, I'm going to, I'm going to open up. I'm, I'm, I'm ratting on everybody. And he becomes fully cooperative. Um, and by June, 2001, uh, his information is very sound. And he gives up Abu Zubedeah. He gives up the, that he mentions uh, that he met Zacharias Moussaoui while he was at Chaldean training camp. And by June 2001, U.S. officials say, all right, you know, this guy's giving us information, but hey, this guy was going to, you know, he's actually was going to bomb. So instead of the 130 years he's getting, he's then sentenced to 27 years for his uh, cooperation, uh, his information. And um, his testimony, his testimony was remarkable because he gives 65 hours of deposition and 150 names, approximately 150 names are involved with terrorist activity. So a remarkable amount of information he gives. Um, but he doesn't give too much away of like who's Khalid, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or Bin Laden, because I don't think he ever meets these people. Well, much in the way like when mafia soldiers or captains, um, they know about certain levels, they don't know the top yeah. level. Right, so that's, I think that's the case. Now, interestingly enough, in November of 2006, in a remarkable change of, of testimony, he writes to the presiding judge who gives him a lenient sentence and recants everything. He says he, he's, he, his accusation saying he was not, he, first of all, he wasn't involved in the bombing plot. And he says that everything I told him was a lie. I don't know what, now there's nothing more in regards, you'll have to read, and it's a very lengthy read, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, Department of Justice 2000 court transcripts regarding the, um, the, the testimony of Rassam. It's public, you can read it. But um, why he recants, no idea. Whether it was by his lawyers, which would be unremarkably stupid, because he's given just 27 years, and he's out in half that time. Um, yeah. But it's remarkable. But guess what happens to him? Okay, recants his testimony. In October of 2012, he's resentenced to 37 years. And he sits, not in a prison cell, comfortably in a federal prison he goes to ADX Florence. Ah, so there you have it, right? And, and, and that's the end of Rassem. He's still there to this current day, and most likely he's going to die there because I, I think he's like in his uh, late 40s, early 50s at this point. And, you know, Ed, what, uh, 31 years, uh, he's going to be in 90s. Time gets out. But it's remarkable why he recants his testimony. Okay, that part is over with. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the hijacking of Indian Airlines Flight 814. And the only reason why I'm going to talk about this is because there is a name that we need to be told about that's going to have some implications down the line for 
Now, the hijacking of Indian Airlines A-14 was perpetrated by Pakistan militants, uh, most notably the Harakat al-Mujahideen. And I mean, old, this is also plotted right on the December 31st. Yeah, it, right, exactly right. This is involved with the Millennium Plot. Mm. The plane was hijacked on Christmas Day, December 24th, 1999. The hijackers, five of them, ordered the aircraft to be flown to a lot of locations. Amistar, India, Lahore, India, Dubai, and of course, before touching down in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Now, the hijackers released 27 of the 176 passengers in Dubai. They stabbed one to kill one, and they wound several others. The motivation for the hijacking was very simple. They wanted the release of three major figures in, involved in terrorist activity in organizations. And they had the following. Mushtaq Ahmed al-Zagar of the Kashmir Liberation Front. Masood Azhar, uh, the founder of Jaisi Muhammad in Pakistan. And one name, who I mentioned before, that's going to have a future implication. Omar Saeed Sheikh, a known terrorist financer, Pakistan militant, and he's going to have some importance in our later interviews regarding the attacks on 9-11, because it turns out that the Pakistan ISA general director, uh, Mahmoud Ahmed, actually gives $100,000, wires it to Omar Saeed Sheikh, who gives it to Muhammad Atta. But I'll, I'll relate more in our interviews with 9-11. Um, at, by the way, all three militants landed in Kandahar, Afghanistan. The hostages aboard the aircraft all three on December 31st, 1999. The ordeal was over. Now, the Taliban, who allows for all the five, the Taliban actually allows all the hijackers to leave Afghanistan. So they depart with a hostage from the Taliban, but they let him go, and they were never heard from again. So a lot of these people that were involved in the Millennium Plot were actually never held accountable, but it saved the acceptance of Ahmed Hussain. And all the people that were involved in the, um, the, the embassy, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the bombing of the LAX airport were the only ones. The, 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 you know, the bombing in, in Lebanon, in Syria, all those militants were free. The Yemeni officials, they were free. And all, everybody was free for the exception of Ahmed Hussein, which I find very interesting. And a lot of questions. It was a huge operation, this operation. It could have been much worse. This operation was very big. But it goes back to a point that these al-Qaeda operations that we were talking about in previous interviews got bolder and bolder, and bolder, and bolder, to, of course, the biggest operation of all, which is 9-11. Mm -hmm. Now, you can make, you can make the, the argument that this probably would have killed a lot of other people, as like in the Bajinka plot. I think the Bajinka plot would have been the biggest disaster of all. But it, what I'm trying to show the, the viewer is that Al-Qaeda themselves, the operatives and the affiliates with their own, were getting bolder in their attacks to the United States and to the, uh, you know, uh, the institutions abroad. That it started out as one small bomb, or well, one big bomb in 93, and then it became to the, the, the attacks of the military in, um, in, uh, 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 in, in Africa, in uh, Mogadishu. And then, of course, to the bombings of bigger uh, buildings in the military in the U.S. Embassy bombings, and then straight to the military. U.S.'s Cole Sullivan, which was a failure. But it, and, and then, of course, the Millennium Plot, which is now the first time attacks that were happening inside the United States. And, of course, you know, what I'm trying to get at is that you could see through, through time the bolding, the bolding applications. 
that LK was growing in their momentum and their bravado. Immensely and, more complexity too, right? To, sure, sure. I mean, the amount of people that must have been involved in the Lenin plot across continents. Oh, and look how many were involved. I, I, we'll never know the amount, but there were hundreds of people. And you'd think in that, the, just the chances that someone's going to say something on a phone call, which gets picked up and relayed, just go right. Up, and up, right? But it does. It... Right. It goes back to your point, which you made earlier. I'm glad we talked about it now regarding the NSA, regarding the information that's being told when the, the you know the, the tapping of the phone in Yemen. And I, you know, I I will submit to you with confidence that a lot of these operatives who are calling this hub. Were, relate, were giving information regarding these attacks. Even if the information was vague or wasn't intricate in its detail, they would still talk about these attacks. So the NSA had to have known. They were the first organization, the first agency to know about these attacks. Then it came to the CIA and then to the FBI, but the FBI usually is afterwards and they clean up the mess. Um, but yeah, I mean, but, but to, for the viewer themselves, I want you to be very careful. Because there's a difference between knowing something and believing something. And what we and Richard are trying to say here, that when it comes to the NSA and the CIA, be very careful in implying that they allowed the attacks to happen or participate in them, rather than knowing about the attacks and letting them happen. I, I, I'm in the firm belief to a lot of people that maybe the NSA or the CIA, certain elements, certain elements allowed these attacks to happen. I can't go any further than that. That's all. I can make a great argument. However, proving it so solidly with the information that we have, no. I, 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 we can't say that they, that they didn't share this information. That's proven. They didn't share. They lied about it under oath in two congressional inquiries, for sure, that they didn't share the information. Now, regarding that they allowed the attacks to happen, I can make a good case for it. However, that's about it. Yeah, I think, I think the point is, Adam, if we're talking about things that are very solid, right, right, then if you think these kind of institutions should be accountable to the public they claim to serve and that they collect your tax money, not, not mine, <laughs> you're, you're an American, right. right? You pay a percentage of your paycheck towards the NSA. Um, and we look at this and, well, we don't know when they started tapping the satellite phone right. and we don't know what they got from it and we don't know when they started tapping the hub. we don't know what they got from it but we can't possibly understand how they couldn't have got all information about the various terrorist attacks from 1998 right. onwards so you know should should we know or should it just be left to people in a secret institution right and, that, and that's my sort of solid starting point really that you can demonstrate something along the lines of criminal negligence right you know, yeah. and, and you can make a case that you can make a very, very, very solid case, that, especially when they're denying information to go to other agencies such as the CIA and FBI. Um, and, and then that, that gets you across the line when you're in court then. And then you can start to ask the deeper questions you know, when you get out because you're, you're never going to know without getting access to the transcripts. Right. That's um, absolutely correct. And it, because it's all uh, locked away presumably for the next 30, 40 years, unless we, we make a, a chance. And I'm going to, after today's interview, I'm going to bring it up to Nelson Martins that, and Ed Brotherton, uh, who are very good uh, researchers in their own right, uh, about because they're familiar with FOI uh, Freedom of Information requests. I'm going to try to do just that. And I think the public, of course, 
has every right to know what was being uh, recorded, what was being transcribed by the NSA, especially the NSA, regarding what was being transcribed as the Al-Qaeda hub in Yemen. We have every right to know because it's happened in our name. These attacks happened to us, and they knew about these attacks, or they had foreknowledge at best, and they didn't share that information with the respective agencies. And they, and they themselves should have been complicit in regards to, they should have been held accountable for not sharing their information. They should have been firings across the board. And, you know, just to bring up a point, Richard Shelby, who is a high-ranking member of the Joyce House Inquiry, actually interviews uh, Michael Hayden. Well, he had Michael Hayden, Robert Mueller, and George Tenet, all directors uh, just, of the NSA. Uh, just, yeah, that Michael Hayden's the NSA director. Right, the NSA director, Robert was, Mueller yeah, for the yeah. FBI, and George Tenet for the CIA. Yeah. He actually says to them, he goes, you know, with the information that you had, and he's the only person in the two congressional to say this, he goes, with the information that you had, you guys should know about the role of accountability. And he actually proposes that question to Hayden, to Mueller and Tennant. And I require anybody to look at that. It's on C-SPAN, you could look at it, it's public, you can watch the videos. And he actually tells them, what's their definition of responsibility? And they all give their definitions. And he says, I'll tell you what, he goes, none of you are responsible. He goes, all three of you are responsible. And you don't know anything about responsibility. And that was the only time I ever seen anybody from the 9-11 Commission to the Joint House Inquiry with close with close to Carl Levin. He's the only one that held that's held him to accountable to that point. The irony of this is that when the Joint House Inquiry was was first formed, the first thing that was said by Porter Goss, who's the head chair, the first thing he says on the first day, he says, this inquiry was set up not to blame any agency, but to find out what information was shared and what was not. That was it. But Shelby denied that. Shelby went a little bit further. And he says that you guys should have shared the information when you should have, and you should know, you should look in the mirror and find out what, self, what responsibility really is. And I thought that was bold. But unfortunately, he's the only one to ever ask that question. And he's the only one to really, uh, to hold them accountable in, a, in, a, in a, an extent, even though it was very lenient at best. I mean, because nobody held them accountable. Nobody. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's the problem to this very day. And I would submit to the viewer that, uh, you know, it's easy to speculate and say that they were involved in the attacks. I, you know, along with myself and Richard, and we talked about this off camera, Go with what you can prove and what you can know, and then go forward from there. Because if you're going to deal with speculation, you're going to deal with crazy theories and unproven theories, you're going to stay right there. You can't go forward. And I would submit to you to take the information, what we say here today, or what you read from uh, History Commons or C-SPAN or whatever forum, take that information, and then you make your own preconceived judgments, and then go forward from there. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe Richard. You don't have to believe anybody. But take what you say. Take what we say here today and take whatever uh, interview that we say previously or forward. Research it yourself. Research it for yourself and make your own judgments. And that's all I can say in that regard. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Adam. Um, next time, I'm not sure. We were talking about starting on looking at some of the 
deeper history of the CIA, uh, maybe it makes sense to do something on Alex Station as we've gone sort of right up to it and, and crossed the line. And that's such a huge part of, of 9-11. Yes. Um, that, well, we'll have a chat about that, but we'll, get, we'll go over one of the two for next time. And, and thanks for everyone for listening. As always, if you have any, um, any comments, because um, there's a lot of stuff you know, we've said that's like, we don't know if it's 1993, 1996. So people have opinions on that with, with stuff that's ambiguous to us. Um, then, yep, be delighted to hear and see you next time. Thank you for having me, Richard.